everyone. Welcome to the Brain Food Show. I'm Simon. Here with me is Davin. We are... This is actually... This is actually going out live. We're recording this on YouTube probably, uh-huh. I guess, about a week before it goes out on the podcast channel. So... Yeah, probably. Davin's also sick. He's got to be yeah, cold. I can so. barely talk, so apologies. <laughs> You were saying before we started recording that you're just, I'm just going to be really non-expressive this podcast the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah every time I try monotone and dull. Every time I try to do any range in my voice, it stops working. So I'll just, I'll just be like this the whole time. It'll sound like our really early YouTube ch- uh, videos. Yeah. Hi, welcome to the channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Today we're going to start with a quick fact on uh, uh, something on the In There Tonight song, and then we're going to talk about uh, a young man who was executed twice and why and what happened there. It was kind of an interesting story. <laughs> are these at all related or are these just completely random? <laughs> completely random. It's like, there's something in the air tonight. Yeah. I shouldn't sing because we can't edit this stuff out. <laughs> no, you should. You <laughs> okay, that's the last time I sing live. Um... I, I, someone comment is it's so weird having the live stuff going on so i just go it's oh my god that's a heavenly voice it is not um <laughs> tell me about phil collins tell me about in the air tonight was phil collins so, in genesis yeah okay he was don't judge me this was before my time you're like yeah yes simon he was in genesis he was amazing <laughs> I wouldn't say amazing, but you know, I, don't know. I don't think I've ever listened. I've probably heard Love in the Air. Is it Love in the Air Tonight? Or just In the Air Tonight in like movies? In the Air Tonight. In the yeah. Air Tonight. Well, what about yeah. it? Tell me something. So it's commonly said that uh, that song was written about when uh, one of Colin's friends drowned. And then there was this guy, apparently, that was just standing around and could have jumped in and saved him, but did not. And then so the story kind of goes that Phil Collins then tracked the guy down and then uh, gave him a front row to the concert. And then at that point, uh, he sings a song, tells the audience the whole story. And uh, so, like, is any of this actually true? And no, no, it's not. It's actually mentioned in an Eminem song. Do you know the song, Stan? Yeah, definitely. That's more my generation. Yeah. Yeah, so no, none of it's true. It actually, uh, Phil Collins himself says uh, he isn't actually sure what In the Air Tonight is actually about. And so it said Collins. It just came to him in a dream. Yeah. I was just fooling around. I got these chords that I liked. So I turned the mic on and started singing. The lyrics you hear are what I wrote spontaneously. That frightens me a bit. But I'm quite proud of the fact that I sing 99.9% of those lyrics spontaneously. I don't know what this song is about. When I was writing this, I was going through a divorce. And the only thing I can say about it is that it's obviously an anger. It's the angry side or the bitter side of a separation. So what makes it even more comical is when I hear these stories, which started many years ago, particularly in America, of someone come up to me and say did you really see someone drowning? I said, no, wrong. And then every time I go back to America, the story gets Chinese whispers. It gets more and more elaborate. It's so frustrating because this is one song out of all the songs probably that I've ever written that I really don't know what it's about. You know, (laughs) it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's awkward to read quotes like this because it's clearly, he's Mm -hmm. just like, you know, (laughs) at the end, it doesn't sound anyway. He sounds like it'd be good on Twitter. Like, people go, hey, was this song about this? No, wrong. (laughs) Cool. Should we move into our main topic? Yes, we will try. Completely unrelated to Phil Collins. Mm. Completely unrelated. So, 15-year-old Willie Francis was the youngest of 13 children in a poor black family living in St. Martinville, Louisiana. Um, That, at the time, only had about 4,000 residents. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, this, we're just going to fast forward right to the event here. August 3rd, 1945, he decides to take a little trip to go visit one of his sisters in Port Arthur, Texas, and that's about 150 miles away. And at the time, the police were looking for a drug dealer at the, at the Port Arthur train station. So they were waiting out, and they see Francis walking along, and he's carrying a suitcase. So, you know, young black man in the 1940s in Texas, walking along with a suitcase, naturally, they decide to arrest him. He must um, be the for, drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, they actually uh, started by r- running after him, and then he sees these random guys chasing after him, and so he runs off, and then he tries to hide uh, yeah. unsuccessfully, and then they they bring him in. So they Seems interrogate him. And, yeah, they interrogate him, and pretty quickly they they decide that he's not a drug trafficker after all. Mm-hmm. But he is stuttering a lot during the interrogation, and they think he looks nervous. I mean, as you would be. Yeah. Um, and so they decide he must be guilty of something, okay. and so they. They, they keep interrogating him. And so it's at this point we should also mention that so a little bit before, about a month before, Sheriff Rez Weaver, 
Resweber, I think, I don't know, of Martinville, St. Martinville. Uh, so he asks the chief of police at Port Arthur he, he, to look for anyone from St. Martinville who seems suspicious. Uh, and and the whole point of this was about 10 months earlier, there was a 53-year-old guy, named, uh, uh, the owner of a Thomas drug store named Andrew Thomas, and he got murdered. And the, the sheriff in um, St. Martinville was completely oblivious. Like he, no leads. Nobody knew who murdered him. And he's Wait. just casting about. They wanted to, they're looking for someone who's nervous about this murder that they committed 10 months ago? No, just anyone from St. Martinville who seems suspicious, just to see, like, maybe they fled town or something after the murder or whatever. Like, it's really, he's just casting a wide net here yeah, because... Yeah, that's a bit of a long shot. It turns out the chief of police, Claude Thomas, is Andrew Thomas's brother. And um, so this he okay. was perhaps putting some pressure on to, hey, solve this crime. Yeah. Like, my brother got killed. You got no, you got nothing 10 months later. Uh, so he's just he's just asking the, the police around if they anyone from St. Martinville seems suspicious, you know, see, maybe there's a connection, you know. So they decide during the interrogation to bring this up with Francis. And naturally, after just a few minutes after they bring this up with Francis, uh, he goes ahead and just confesses to murdering Andrew Thomas, okay. as, as you do. Um, <laughs> I'm going to guess the story doesn't end here. <laughs> no. And to be clear, the, there's Francis. He did know Thomas, and he actually worked for him for a while. So, I mean, it was a small town, and he worked for him on jobs occasion at his uh, his house and also mm -hmm. at his place of business, just doing random stuff, you know, mowing the lawn and, you know, running errands and stuff like that. So he didn't know Thomas. So it wasn't like a completely no connection here. Uh, so they do this. So he, he confesses after just literally just a few minutes after they bring up the whole Thomas thing. Uh, it was me. Yeah, it's a totally. Okay. I, I, yeah. And obviously, back then, the interrogations, especially of a, of a black, uh, young black man at this point in, in, in Texas, were going to be super, super brutal. Going, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and all that. Not, not. And so in any event, so literally just a few minutes after he confesses to them, they have him write up a, a an actual written confession. Uh, and so it reads. Just before I read this, I do want to preface this by saying that this is going to be, I'm going to trip on this so many times because it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly brilliantly written. Um, let me just have a go at it. Uh, I, Willie Francis, now 16 years old. I stole the gun from Mr. Aguiz. Uh, and that's that, that that's supposed to be like August, but he spelled it Augies. Yeah. O G I S E. Mm -hmm. Like um, I said, it's going to yeah. be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, St. Martinville, uh, LA is Louisiana. Yeah. Okay. And kill Andrew Thomas, November 9, 1944, or about the time at St. Martinville, Louisiana. I was a secret about me and him. I took a black purse with card in it, $4 in it. I also took a watch on him and sell it in New Iberia, Louisiana. That all I am said, I throw gun away, 38 pistol. All right, so this statement also, I didn't put it here, but also had some uh, typed bits from the police that also asserted that they did not coerce Francis in any way into confessing. All right, so he writes a second confession the next day, this time when he's in the custody of Sheriff Resweber of St. Martinville. Mm -hmm. And this one does not include any bits about uh, being not being coerced or anything like that, like the first one, and uh, corrects the date uh, as the as the 8th instead of the 9th, and adds a bunch of details to actually make it seem like he actually committed the murder and not just, like, randomly confessing. So details How is that this the, allowed? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you want to read the, the second confession? Yeah, and again, it's going to be difficult. Yes, Willie Francis confessed that he killed Andrew Thomas on November 8th, 1944. I went to his house about 11.30pm. I hide back in his garage about half an hour. When he came out of the garage, I shot him five times. That all I remember. Sinali Willie Francis. Yeah. How is that allowed? Wait, so they take a confession from him the first time. It's not, it doesn't quite fit the events of the crime, like it being on the, on the wrong day. Yeah. And then the police yeah. are like, oh, can you just fix this to be here? Yeah, go ahead uh, and then add details so it you know, makes you seem like you actually know what you're talking about. Um, so he also, in the beginning, uh, claimed that other people were involved in the murder, but then uh, he retracted this because, you know, it appears to be a, uh, have been a one-man murder oh. um, by the, you know, the, the evidence of the case. So this brings us to September 13th, 1945. Francis was naturally, given all this evidence of, you know, non-existent yeah, uh, conviction no of the murder. This clearly coerced confession. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, no, it gets better. But uh, so he's convicted of the murder, sentenced to death by execution or electrocution. Uh, and so on May 3rd, 1946, one Captain Effie Foster and also a Vincent Venezia, who's actually an inmate there at the at the prison, but he's also an electrician. So they have him helping out to uh, set up Gruesome Gertie, the electric chair. Um, and it happens to be that at the same time, they were both really drunk before before the thing as <laughs> you do before you got them. extremely drunk <laughs> yeah extremely drunk and so francis at this point is now 17 uh, and so he he you know goes he has, he, well, this was kind of funny as he's marching towards the chair so a deputy tells him don't worry willie it won't hurt you very much you won't even feel it <laughs> i'm gonna then, get, i get the feeling that was a lie yeah and francis would then uh, kind of sensibly state of this I wasn't worried at all about whether it would hurt me. I was more worried about the fact that it was going to kill me. Yeah, and sensibly. It, sensibly, but it also turns out they were both wrong. Uh, so what happened was when the, when the switch was flipped at 12.08 p.m. that day, uh, Francis, he started jerking around violently uh, in the chair. And um, so he would go on to describe the experience. And as you might imagine from him being able to describe it later, he lived. So this is what he says. I didn't think about my whole life like at the picture show. Just, Willie, you're going out of this world in this bad chair. Sometimes I thought it so loud it hurt my head when they put the black bag over my head. I was all locked up inside the bag with the loud thinking. I wanted to say goodbye. Uh, apparently, Captain Foster had cheerfully said goodbye, Willie, before yep. th throwing the switch. So yep. this guy wanted to say goodbye to him too. That's mm -hmm. very grim uh okay moving on mm -hmm. but i was so scared i couldn't talk my hands were closed tightly then i could almost hear it coming the best way i can describe it is wham pssst. it felt like a hundred and a thousand needles and pins were pricking in me all over and my left leg felt like somebody was cutting it with a razor blade i could feel my arms jumping at my sides and i guess my whole body must have jumped straight out i couldn't stop the jumping if that was tickling it was sure a funny kind I thought for a minute I was going to knock the chair oh, yeah. over. Uh, uh, in reference to that tickling, uh, right before the execution when he had been meeting with uh, one Father Hannigan, you know, to like confession and stuff like that, because he was Catholic. Uh, so the father told him he should feel lucky that he's being executed because he knows when he's going to die, so he can kind of prepare himself, unlike other people. Uh, and uh, and then also... <laughs> Look on the bright uh, side. <laughs> yeah. Positive Father Hannigan here. Yeah. Uh, so then, and he also told him that it would just tickle, and then he'd die, so it wouldn't wouldn't hurt at all. He so was that also was, that was he was also wrong. Yeah, uh, I thought for a minute I was going to knock the chair over. Then I was all right. I thought I was dead. Then they did it again. The same feeling all over. I heard a voice say, "Give me some more juice down there." And in a little while, somebody yelled, I'm "Giving you all I got now." I think I must have hollered for them to stop. They say I said, "Take it off. Take it off." I know that was certainly what I wanted them to do. Turn it off. Yeah, oh, so... Is, so they... Yeah. Is, do you still have electric chair? I think so. There's actually... Oh, I was looking... Uh, we were doing that, uh, that one on um, Midnight Executions, I think it was. Uh, and it turns out there's actually even some states where you can still request a firing squad if you want. I think um, I would. Yeah, I, yeah, but uh, I, I don't think anyone's done that in a really long time. But it's still an option. Like you can request it as the as the um, in certain cases. It wasn't all cases, uh, but there were some cases where the where the person being executed could pick which one they wanted, like lethal injection or firing squad. Or it seems yeah. I read like in the papers every other month about some electric, uh, not electric, some lethal injection going funky and some. Yeah. It all yeah. seems very complicated, like unnecessarily it, it, complicated. And well, it has to be because there's so many like it has to be done in a in a like a humane way, you know. And if it's not, like there's a lot of legal ramifications to that. And so it has to be like everything has to be very regulated and and you know step by step. And uh, also, as it turns out, they they have trouble sometimes getting people who want to do it again. You know, like so the the people doing it are kind of often doing it for the first time or like it's not something they do often, so it's easy to botch uh, occasionally. Oh, so there's so, no there's no people who are like regular executioners. Uh, I'm sure there are, but it's not like, you know, it's not a job people want usually. No, um, I'm not surprised. We did a whole video about that. Um, yeah, how yeah. did you become an executioner in the Middle Ages? Yeah, Lots yeah. Of stuff yeah about that was that. a good one. That's that was a good one. To today, but yeah, so yeah, 
at a certain point, it became clear that the electric chair wasn't actually going to kill Francis. It was just causing him to jerk around and scream. And so uh, they decided to actually remove Francis from it. They take him to the coroner. Doctor One, Doctor Young was there on hand. Was supposed to pronounce him dead, but now is just looking him over, see you know how he was, and uh, he he was fine. You know, the the obvious. Uh, So and then they decide at this point they're going to remove him and then just kind of see where we're wrong and see what they're supposed to do now and so as he's leaving the captain foster the drunk captain foster who flipped the switch now yells at him i missed you this time but i'll get you next week if i have to use an iron bar yeah <laughs> so how is this okay he's a good guy what's uh, going captain on foster. yeah so you might think they would just fix the problem with chair and then just carry out the execution again, uh, as Foster had suggested. That was kind of the plan. But at first, officials, they weren't really sure what to do with him now because the execution didn't go on. So like, what what now? And so they actually, uh, the various officials, they got together with Governor Jimmy Davis mm-hmm. uh, and decide what, what do we do with him. And so it was decided now just execute him next week. You know, about a week later, they would just kind of, they would take the chair, have it examined, figure out what went wrong, fix it. And then the next week, just execute him again, or you know, I'm gonna, try to. Yeah, I'm gonna guess it had something to do with those drunk guys setting it up. Those extremely yeah. drunk guys. Um, yeah, is there exactly. in that execution video? We had that thing about like the death warrant, so you had to have. Mm-hmm it was only valid for 24 hours or something. Yeah. But I yeah. guess back in the day, they would just say, oh yeah, we can just wait a while. And or do you think they needed to get more paperwork sorted? I'm not sure at this point. It might've been also that the governor himself might be the one that issues them. I'm not, I'm actually not sure about that one. Uh-huh. Uh, the governor assume... like the head of the state, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, correct. And, and the governor can like, uh, you know, commute the sentence, they can actually, the governor could have said, you know, if he wanted, he could have just pardoned him and just been like, no, he just went through it. We're not going to make him go through it again. But uh, obviously, that would have you been know, nice. Yeah. So Given Captain Foster, fact, it seems he's very likely innocent. Yeah, uh, as, as will come out shortly. Uh, but so Captain Foster, he says he actually says what went wrong with the chair he reported in the media that uh, there was a shortage. A little wire was loose. What a surprise. <laughs> I yeah. wonder who was responsible for that. A little yeah. wire was loose and the current went back into the ground instead of going into... That's a word I can't read. Instead of going into the N-word. Yeah. yeah. He's a good guy, that Foster. <laughs> um, but so uh, so the um, in the interim, though, there's this weak period, right, where he's just sitting there and the father of, of Willie, uh, Francis' father, his name was Frederick Francis. He was quite unhappy with the legal representation, which we'll get into shortly, of Wait, his did son. He have legal representation? Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, so he approaches this is uh, the worst a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, no. No, they've asked you to amend the, the confession to get it to the right date. Is that, is she, I just, just do that. That sounds right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, there was actually two lawyers. He had two lawyers who did nothing. Uh, so the legal team. <laughs> So Frederick Francis, he's he's got no money. He's poor, and so but he, nevertheless, he wants a he wants a non-state appointed lawyer, and so he approaches uh, Bertrand de Blanc, and he and this Bertrand de Blanc actually was a friend of Andrew Thomas, like a really close friend of the murdered guy. He was murdered? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so um, it was a small town, so you know they kind of knew each other, but sure. uh, so. So he but he didn't have any money to pay to blank, but he was like, I will work for you. Like, I'll do whatever you want if you would just take my son's case and, you know, try to, you know, get this, get this looked over again. And so to blank actually, you know, he politely said, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. Um, he, he did eventually get some vegetables, apparently, from the Frederick Francis's garden. Uh, but that was his only payment there. Um, and later he did get some help from the, from lawyers from the NAACP and also one judge, Jay Scully Wright joined in. You know, just join the cause at a certain point. But either way, DeBlank, he did, while he declined the offer for work, he did decide to take the case, mm-hmm. even though he was a friend of Andrew Thomas and all that. And he didn't actually think Willis uh, was was innocent. Uh, that's not why he took the case. He actually um, stated, It's not humane to make a man go to the chair twice. The state fell down on its job. It made Willie suffer the torture of facing death without completing it. Yeah, isn't there something in your constitution about this? Uh-huh. I feel like uh, it it's can, one of the ones at the top. <laughs> it can potentially be. There's a few legal arguments that can be made on this one, uh, which yeah, we'll get into shortly. But um, so okay. DeBlanc actually had quite a bit of backlash for taking the case from local you know, community members who 
were convinced this this kid was guilty of of killing this this guy who was quite popular around town, and so they wanted to see him die. And they were, "Why are you defending him?" Uh, and so he actually just uh, a blank. Did yeah. the local community have some different version of the facts? Because I well, the thing is, is you know, he was convicted guilty by a jury, uh, and you know, I don't know. <laughs> he, he was a black kid who supposedly killed a white guy in a heavily white town, you know, in the 1940s in the South. I'm glad, so, I'm glad we live in the future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there was quite a bit of backlash, but DeBlanc uh, kind of defended himself, noting that all people are entitled to be heard, whether rich or poor, black or white. And that... My critics will soon be dead and buried, but the principles involved in this case of freedom from fear of cruel and unusual punishment and that of due process and double jeopardy will live as long as the American flag waves on this continent. Yeah. So this de Blanc actually actually seems like an actually a good guy. Seems like a good guy. Um, unlike the that, that captain of the police force. Uh, so on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so and he did. Know what's um, fun? What yeah. I like about this sort of thing is that is the only thing we will ever remember him for. Uh, it's the true. Only thing in history that this man ever is notable yeah. for, and it's just if like us ripping on him in a podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this DeBlanc, uh, well, he did go on to have a, a pretty successful career. And so in like legal circles, maybe people have heard of him. Uh, the general public, this, this is like general goodness is all people will know him for. Yep. As well. Um, so, so again, like initially, that. initially DeBlanc thought Francis was guilty, but then he actually started looking into the case and, and he was, uh, he switched his <laughs> mind, uh, changed his mind pretty quickly. What a so, surprise. So first, the first fact is that uh, so this uh, Willis Willie had no legal representation whatsoever during any of the interrogations. Oh, and it's also one thing that's a little talked about is during when he confessed to the murder of Thomas, he also confessed to robbing this old guy in Port Arthur, assaulting and robbing him, even though he wasn't even in Port Arthur at the time. Um, so that's that's less that's talked about. So he, for you. Yeah, he he confessed to it, but he, he couldn't have possibly done it. Uh, so either way, obviously they didn't uh, convict him on that one. They went with the murder. There's so, there's so much stuff we're going to look back on. I mean, us looking yeah. back on this now and yeah. thinking this is ridiculous. Because clearly this yeah. forced confession and all of this yeah. stuff. I think the stuff we'll look back on in 50 years of now, mm-hmm. we'll be like, that was ridiculous. Like, yeah. Didn't we, yeah. did we just do a video about the... Nope. I was listening to a pod. I get confused because we make so much stuff and I listen to so many podcasts. I was listening yeah. to a podcast. It might have been that My Favorite Murder Murderer podcast. And was it that? I can't remember. Anyway, it was about some DNA. And basically there was some... <laughs> this is useless. I can't remember enough of the story to make it interesting. So, But it was something about how DNA evidence was so easily confused back in the early days. And yeah. it wasn't just this crazy lock-in that CSI teaches it teaches us that yeah. it is. Um, mm-hmm. And then also eyewitness testimony. It seems like that's just mostly <laughs> like people yeah. guessing. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I yeah. saw a car accident once and then I like pulled over and then I got like uh, a letter from an insurance company later being like, Hey, you witnessed this car accident. Can you tell us about like the position of the vehicles? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course I can. And then I got to filling out this document, asking all about it. And this was only like six months before. And I, and I quickly realized, Oh no, I cannot at all. I can't even remember <laughs> who was there or what type of cars it were or like where, yeah. what, no, nothing. It's really well, and the, the slightest suggestion will make you remember something completely different as well. So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It, the insurance company that it was all worded like, and then the red car crashed heavily. Yeah. No, it wasn't really, but they could very easily have influenced me. <laughs> yeah, if they're so, just drawn a drawing, this is our interpretation. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right. So going back to the case, this was not the only troubling thing to block found. It, it gets amazing. So. The gun, the gun that Francis supposedly used to murder Thomas, happened to belong to the sheriff's deputy. Um, the gun was also lost while it was uh, before the trial, while it was in transit to the FBI crime lab to be analyzed. Wait, so uh, the sheriff's it, deputy could have killed this guy? 
Oh, yeah, it, it gets worse. So the bullets that were recovered from the body were also lost conveniently. Um, and they, they actually, when they were lost, they hadn't even checked to see if the bullets could have been fired from that gun. Like this, the, the level of not detail they did in this investigation, which, to be fair, was the sheriff's first ever murder investigation. And he botched a lot of things along the way. Okay. Uh, so that... They, uh, they didn't bother checking the gun when they had it for any fingerprints or anything like that. And also, the deputy would report that his gun was stolen, supposedly two months before the murder, but there's no record of him ever actually officially reporting it stolen. And the only uh, person who, besides himself who states that's true was the district attorney who said he remembered having a conversation with the sheriff deputy about him losing his gun a couple months before. Hold, um, hold and this, on. Yeah. <laughs> the sheriff's deputy... If he did this, and then he was like, yeah, yeah, no, it was stolen. What sort of sheriff yeah. is like, oh, I'm going to go out murdering and uses his own gun? I feel yeah. like even with the level of incompetence that's clearly on display here, he I might have like not actually a bit gone risky. there. He might not have actually gone there to to murder him because when, when Thomas, the coroner's actually looked, and the Thomas was actually in a quite a like a like a tussle or whatever. I can't remember the wording that the coroner used, but basically he was in a fight before he got shot. So it may have been that he simply got might have gone there, gotten in a fight, not intending to kill him, and then just got really angry and shot him. Um, and you know, so either way, so the the gun. I should also point out that the deputy shortly before Andrew Thomas was killed threatened publicly to kill Thomas. <laughs> um, so not only was it his gun. But he also publicly threatened to kill Thomas. Okay. Also, um, it doesn't sound like the best idea when you're planning to kill someone. Yeah, so he thought the reason why he was so angry with Thomas because he thought Thomas was having an affair with... It's not clear whether it's with his wife or the deputy also had a few mistresses. So it's not really clear which woman he was talking about, but he was basically wanted Thomas to stay away from her, uh, whoever. Uh, so it was one, there was a father, Rusev, who, who was the one who reported on this this threat to kill. Um, yeah, and he, he noted he was, it was definitely a woman, but he wasn't sure which woman uh, the deputy was referring to. Um, Thomas himself, it should be noted here, was uh, rumored to have many affairs with women around town. He was a 53-year-old bachelor, mm-hmm. never been married like to hang out at women's houses when their husbands weren't around. And so people generally, that was initially after his murder, the the, the populace of the town just kind of assumed one of these husbands probably killed him. Oh, okay. uh, you know, and it was just, you know, who, which one, who knew. But it actually turns out there is a sort of a side story here with two of the women who he used to go, uh, you know, go visit. One was called, uh, named Bain Nassen, and the other was, yeah, Henrietta Duplantis. And they actually both uh, independently said that actually Thomas was gay and that he just really enjoyed the company of women. And he liked to bring some of his products, like his makeup and stuff like that, and demonstrate them to them. Okay. And so he just like, they, they say that that is it. Um, but it is, uh, it is also no... Really, I totally forgot what his job was. He was a pharmacist, kind of oh, owned a, a shop that sold, you know, stuff like that. Okay. However, these women, both of them were kind of run through the media, alluding to the fact that they were having affairs and stuff like that. So the kind of their reputations were ruined. So it's not, you know, they... They could have been making that up just to cover for themselves. I was going to say, yeah. it sounds like, the, yeah, you know, like, yeah, no, we were just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, he was totally Although gay. He was a bachelor, just, like 53-year-old bachelor, yeah, and this is 50, the 1940s. Yeah. yeah, so, and this actually brings us, there is a, a, like, a speculative motive for Francis may have actually killed Thomas. Like, and this is, like, completely speculative and tenuous at best. So it turns out, uh, so if you remember that line you read in his first confession, it was a secret between him and I. And so yeah. uh, kind of running with the story that maybe he was gay, uh, the, the, the Stella Vincent, who was a former employee of Thomas, uh, according to her sister, and this is completely hearsay, so again, it's completely tenuous, who knows, uh, the, Edith says that Stella told her why, like at a certain point she worked for Thomas, and then she just abruptly one day, she just quit. She just left, okay. like just left the office, I'm not going, and then she moved to a different town. And it was like, why? And so... Edith claims that Stella told her that the reason was because she witnessed an incident in one of the back rooms between Thomas and Francis that was sexual in nature, uh, and that she didn't couldn't work for him anymore after that. And so this this has kind of been speculated. Maybe that was the it was a secret between him and I, and why perhaps uh, Francis wanted to kill Thomas. Uh, maybe, but it's, you know, this is completely. It's a thing people say. So I thought I'd bring on. it up. But, it's the yeah. sister of the woman who witnessed this thing. Yeah. That mu- it, and like years later, she brings this up. Uh, yeah. It's an unknown lawyer, but... Uh. Yeah. And, and important here is that Francis himself 
would describe Thomas in glowing terms. And like, after he was arrested and everything, he would talk about him like he was an awesome guy. And like literally said, he's a swell guy, a very, a very fine fellow. Uh, I didn't have a grudge against him. And so it, this seems a, a stretch, but it's something that people often suggest as a, as a potential motive. And this is uh, the best motive that anyone can come up with as to why he might want to do have, have killed him. So anyways, going back to the yeah, evidence. Wait. In that whole initial yeah. confession thing, yeah. what was the... What was the alleged motive? That just that he wanted to rob his wallet? Yeah, this is what the prosecutors went with, that he wanted to rob him. But that also didn't make sense Shot because he worked... five times. Yeah, he worked for Thomas. He could have robbed him many other times without Thomas even knowing. Why would he go to Thomas's house that night and rob him? For what reason? And the thing he was supposedly robbed him, all he supposedly took was a pocket watch. Uh, and in, speaking of that pocket watch... So Francis supposedly stole that from him and then sold it at a jeweler's. And so this this could be good evidence, like if the jeweler had this pocket watch, right? Yeah. So the police go to that uh, Rivera's jewelry store and they asked him, they, did you did he sell you a pocket watch? And, and the jeweler said, no, I've never seen Francis before in my life. Uh, he, did, he did show that around the time of the murder, he did shortly after he did, someone did sell him a pocket watch for, for $5, according to his records. But he, again, he said he'd never seen Francis before. He didn't know anything about that. So... This could have been potential evidence, but it ended up not being because they didn't have the watch and they didn't have any, you know, the, the jeweler didn't say it was Francis. It just so, gets more insane. Yeah. And so they, obviously this doesn't get brought up in the, in the trial either. Um, why, has why, the gun, why would it? The gun didn't get brought up in the trial either because they didn't have it. Um, so literally they they're going nothing. with... They have that. They, they have, have the They have absolutely nothing. Yeah. And so then this is even more sort of damning is, is Thomas's neighbors... Alvin and Ida Van Brocklin, they hear gunshots, right, on the night of the murder. So Ida looks out the window, and she sees a car in the, in the driveway, and the lights are on, and it's running. And after the gunshot, she, she's scared, so she, you know, just closes it, closes the door, or whatever, closes the window, and they just go back to bed. And the next morning, the car is gone before the body was found. Uh, so uh, there was a car there. Now there's no car there when the body's found in the front yard. And yet Francis, he never learned to drive a car and he didn't have access to one. He was like 15 so, or something or 16. Yeah, and poor. And so, yeah, he had, he had he, you know. So, and again, the coroner reported there was some sort of fight and then five, sh five shots. And this is also significant. It's five shots from a six-shooter. All five shots hit him. Uh, and two, two in the side, two in the back, one in the head. Francis has never fired a gun, as far as anyone was aware, before this incident. Um, and somehow he managed is with this this thirty eight caliber uh, gun to hit all, all connect with all five shots uh, quite accurately, and so it would seem that the person who shot the thing probably actually you know was familiar with the gun and good at firing it like a deputy would be. Yeah. Um, again, this seems like a little bit of a stretch. How did how did Francis hit him with all five shots when he supposedly never fired a gun before in his life? So this. This is all they got. They have the confession. That's it. They really have no other evidence against him. So even like a slightly competent lawyer should have been able to create enough reasonable doubt to, for the jury to be just like, no, he, he didn't do it. I feel like a slightly um, competent child would have been able yeah. to. Or like a judge who's just reasonable might be like, all right, guys, let's let's do a little talk at the bench here, yeah. people. He's, uh, you know, either way, either way. So the two public defenders who were hired, assigned to him were James Randall Parkinson and Otto J. Maystayer. And so, and you know what, their first act as his lawyer is to try to get him, literally, they, they appeal to the judge to get Francis to change his plea of uh, not guilty to guilty <laughs> is as their first act. Wait, the and guy's this, on his side? Yeah. And under Louisiana state law at the time, anyone who pled guilty for murder was automatically get the death penalty. So by doing and this, no he would get the death penalty. Guilty to murder. There's no appeal here process going. And so that's their first act to defend him is to try to get the judge to just change change the plea, even though Francis says not guilty. Um, and then he would so be this, automatically executed. Yes. Uh, so then following this up, when the judge did not, uh, so then they actually have to defend him. Uh, they did not bother to try to get a change in venue, even though the uh, obviously this was a small town. Yeah. Everyone knew about the murder. Everyone knew about Francis. A lot of them knew both the people. Um, everyone had formed their opinion, of course, up and up, you know, leading up to the trial beforehand. So everyone in the jury would, before the trial even started, would already have an opinion on whether he was guilty or not and all that. Um, so they didn't even say, they didn't seek a change in venue even though they probably could have got one. Uh, and so, and 
Oh, it should also be noted, like Francis was well liked around town. Uh, and he had worked for a lot of people around town, and um, apparently not uh, by those twelve jurors. Yeah, the the people who's generally described as like a very kind and gentle disposition, not violent at all. Um, Francis himself claimed. My friends used to tell me I could almost I could make almost anyone laugh when I said or did something. Yeah, apparently he was also quite a jokester and a prankster. Uh, and uh, his mother would would describe her name was Louise, and she would describe her son. He didn't like no baseball or football, didn't even shoot marbles. Most times he was around the house when he wasn't in school and he was in the Lord's own blessing when it came to helping his mama. That child could cook and make a bed as good as women folks. My Willie was always kind. He used to play with little children. Even when he was a big boy, he used to play with them. There wasn't no bad in him. I just don't understand. Yeah, and a lot of the people around town actually didn't understand either. Like, really, that guy? That's who you think? And so it was quite a mixed opinion among the town folk as to whether he was guilty before the trial. But the point was there that everyone kind of did already have an opinion, uh, which which definitely, you know, he, the lawyers probably could have got a change of venue to some sort of a more neutral territory. Uh, they also, when the trial actually started, they waived their right to an opening statement. Uh, they did not raise a single objection during the brief trial. Oh, yeah, they'd already the, asked him to plead guilty, which was a mandatory death penalty. <laughs> like These guys yeah. are not super motivated. Yeah, so the prosecutors argued that it was, uh, as mentioned, it was a robbery gone wrong, which didn't make any sense, and why they did, did not he, object. Why didn't he change his lawyer? Or so? Is that... He had well, two, these are public. He had no money, and these are know, public know, defenders. Surely at that point, he'd be like, uh, they asked me to plead guilty where I'd mandatorily get the death penalty judge. I'd request a different public defender. It's crazy. I wonder if you can. I don't, I don't know if you can like uh, request a different one once it's assigned, or if you have to hire if you want to do that. I don't That's know. Messed up. Were you were you like a law student? Yeah, I was, but not of like criminal law and not of American oh, okay. criminal law and not of American criminal law in the nineteen forties. It's quite right. a big field. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so uh, then, then when the prosecutors rest, you know, they rest the case. Francis lawyers stand up and they say they have no evidence to offer on behalf of the accused and rested their case immediately. They didn't even attempt to defend anything uh, at, at all. So again, even a halfway competent attorney could have, could have, you know, easily probably got Francis like I off. said, halfway competent child. I'd yeah. rather have an they, eight-year-old defending me. Yeah. They did actually make some closing remarks, but unfortunately these remarks were not recorded, so we don't know what those were. But they were probably... Fry him, like, hang him, take him outside and shoot him maybe? Yeah, yeah he's totally guilty. You should just wow. you know, convict him probably. But either way... They also, after the fact, they didn't bother filing any appeals, which, which for any any execution, like if your if your your guy is you know sentenced to death, well, yeah, any it takes like twenty gonna, years to kill someone. I feel. Yeah, and they're they're always going to file appeals, even if even if they're not real likely, and they're going to go through their motions, uh, just try every every avenue to get the person off. But they didn't they didn't bother any of this. So <laughs> why would they? we should actually bring? There is the the other the actual supposed evidence against him. And why the original police say they, they brought up the Thomas thing was they claimed uh, that Francis Francis actually had Thomas's wallet in his pocket for some reason ten months later that had Thomas's ID in it again ten months later why uh, they claimed that was there but they lost it and so it was not brought up at the trial either um, so it was really just their 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 word that that had actually happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, I should mention that Francis uh, supposedly led the police to where the gun, where he supposedly threw the gun away. And the gun wasn't there, of course, at the time. Uh, again, the police were the only witnesses to this anyway. But uh, apparently, a couple months before this, a gun had been found there, they claim, uh, by an unknown the citizen police. unnamed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He, yeah. And the fun, and it was in the exact spot that he said. Uh, Wait, and so the he led term. them there. And then later yeah. on, they were like, yeah, yeah, we definitely found something there before. Right, guys? Yeah, and right, guys? Of course, this again is the gun that was lost. And then these citizens that supposedly did all this were never named um, at all. And, and there was no witnesses. Like, he, he still didn't have a lawyer at this point when all this was going on. In fact, I think it was only like it was a week before the actual murder trial when they assigned the lawyers to him. And he had been in jail for quite some time at that point without ever having a lawyer to speak to. So naturally, at this point, DeBlanc is like, yeah, I don't think this guy is guilty anymore. And so. The one weird thing about this, though, and the thing people bring up is that DeBlanc, so DeBlanc and then eventually the NAACP lawyers are, are fighting for Francis' life. But at no point did Francis ever, ever say he didn't kill him. 
Like he, he just, he maintained, he seemed to maintain that he did kill Thomas why? and he had many correspondence and stuff. And that, that's the thing is like, why? And even there was even, uh, he told one reporter, I wasn't after money. So implying that he did attack Thomas, but denying that the prosecutors were right, that he was actually robbing him. But he didn't say, he, re, he would always refuse to say why he killed him then. Uh, so it was just sort of kind of weird. And so the general thought is that perhaps he was being pressured, like maybe his family was being threatened, like maybe the police told him, hey, if you say you didn't do it, you know, maybe oh, we'll wow. do something to your family or something. I wonder so that's why kind he of, didn't plead guilty then. Yeah, it is. Maybe it's that quite, was just too much or something. Yeah, it's, it's this is sort of the mystery of it. Why did why did he never can't? And the only time he ever seems to have done that is on his cell wall right before his execution. There was he did write, of course, I'm not a killer on the wall. Uh, and that's the only time. And so the, the general thought is maybe he was being threatened or, or his family was being threatened or something like that. So he was just keeping his mouth shut. Either way, DeBlanc and his lawyers, his new lawyers, uh, didn't think for a second he was actually guilty. But uh, so after the, but nevertheless, going back to the two, it was a two day trial, the 12 white jurors, they convict him, um, sent him to death, all that. So now we're going on to the, to, to DeBlanc's defense. So yeah. after the, after the failed execution, DeBlanc is looking at his options and he can, looking at the evidence, he can potentially go, Hey, there's all this evidence that wasn't brought up that seems to you know, show he's innocent. So we should get a new trial based on this new evidence. Sounds like a uh, good idea. His problem was that he only had a week to work with, and going that route he thought was going to take too long, and so he'd just get executed in the interim while you know the paperwork was kind of going through and trying to make his arguments. Mm -hmm. So he decided to do a different tack. Instead, he goes with the argument that the sentence had already been carried out. He was scheduled to sit in that chair and have it switched on well, and uh, be executed. scheduled to be killed. He was, but this is still an argument because it was the sense was carried out. So there is a there was a legal argument to be had. And the I other feel thing, like I'd have just gone with any one of the huge yeah. multitude oh, he of had more. things that would have got him off. He had more. His second thing was that uh, punishing him again would constitute cruel and unusual punishment, which would actually, when you know, uh, doing it a second time, and that would not, you know, that definitely, if the Supreme Court would side with him on that, uh, you know, and so this this was deemed good enough argument. So he did get a stay of execution that lasted almost a year, uh, over which he got to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and and it became, as you might imagine, this story of this kid who, who this young man, he was 15 when he supposedly can, you know, did this murder, and then you know, so young when he was getting executed, the the electric chair doesn't work. So then there's there's quite a few actually, a lot of the church groups, uh, churches around the country, a lot of religious people were like, this is a miracle. It was obviously like the hand of God saving him. He must have been innocent, or at least, you know, should be like before. Yeah, yeah. And so this is kind of a, he has, so it became a national sort of story and that people were following it. And so, yeah, a lot of people felt he was innocent, uh, some not so much. But either way, DeBlanc, he takes his argument to the Supreme Court and initially it was a seven to two against. And so it seems like this is this thing's going to work at all. But yeah. one of the justices, uh, Harold, Justice Harold Burton, was quite adamant. Like he, he was, he definitely wanted Francis Doffier. And so he convinced Justice Frank Murphy and Justice, Justice William O. Douglas to change their vote. And his general argument was uh, was stated as. Yeah, stated as, how many deliberate and intentional reapplications of electric current does it take to produce cruel, unusual, and unconstitutional punishment? While five applications would be more cruel and unusual than one, the uniqueness of the present case demonstrates that today, two separate applications are sufficiently cruel and unusual to be prohibited. If five attempts would be cruel and unusual, it would be difficult to draw the line between two, three, four, and five. It's a pretty solid and argument. Yeah, and this was kind of DeBlanc was really pushing for it because he was yeah. noting like, well, what happens if the second execution right. goes wrong too? So now you've just done it twice. What happens if they keep going wrong and it's like 20? Yeah, and you, you draw the line. You can't guarantee the second one's going to be successful. And even if, and, and again, even if it was, he's doing it a second time, you know, cruel and unusual. And then How of course, this this, become a, when did this become a better idea than the firing squad? Or like the yeah. gas chamber? This was uh, Thomas Edison really pushed for this uh, as and in some ways, well, it looks more brutal once it's switched on. If it actually works, the person's going to be inst instantly unconscious. They're not going to, you know, and that's the general idea. There's no supposed pain uh, normally. Like you just, you know, switch is flipped and then a split second later, you're you don't feel anything, even though you're like jerking around and doing all that. They're leaving it on. So and it's kind of, yeah, you're unconscious. Okay, okay. It's okay. kind of the, the argument there. Uh, so. 
now with with uh, this Justice Harold Burton's uh, convincing these other two justices to switch sides, the the vote is now five to four. And but there's one Justice Felix Frankfurter. He actually agrees from the moral standpoint that Francis should be left off. But from a legal perspective, oh, no. he, he can't side with him. He just doesn't agree with the legal argument there. But from morally, uh, he was quite distraught over this because he wanted to side with him, but he just didn't feel he could. Oh. Um, so ultimately, the, the vote went against him five to four. And it was actually the day after his 18th birthday, Francis's 18th birthday, that this happened. So, but this wasn't the end because Justice Frankfurt, he was quite upset about this this thing. He didn't, you know, he wanted this kid to get off or at least, you know, not have to be executed again. So he actually reached out to uh, a friend of his, uh, um, uh, who was an attorney in Louisiana, who also happened to be really good friends with the Louisiana governor, Jimmy Davis. And so he, you know, implored his friend, would you talk to Davis and see if he would, he would just, you know, make it a life sentence instead of executed and yeah. you know, just give him a life sentence in prison. Yeah. Um, so that way, you know, Davis, maybe all the people who thinks he's guilty are still happy, but now all the people who want to see him not executed again are going to be happy. So it's like a good middle ground. Uh, but unfortunately, Davis did not agree and he did not do this. So the attempt there failed. And so while you might think a lawyer who's not really getting paid would give up at this point uh, to blank. He was not giving up at all. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't giving up at all. So he decided then to go back to the beginning and to actually do, now that he had some time to work with, to actually go with a different argument that the trial had been a sham. There's new evidence that we found on Earth that actually yeah, should yeah, yeah. give to get a second trial. New um, evidence on Earth. There was no evidence to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And one of the new evidence, this was actually known at the time, but it wasn't brought up anywhere at the trial, was the eyewitness, uh, again, wasn't brought up at the trial because his defense, he had no defense, but it was known that the eyewitnesses had seen a car and then there was no car later. Like at the time of the gunshots, there was a car, no car in the morning. Uh, Francis can't drive. What? So clearly, <laughs> clearly there's something going on there. And so uh -huh. he, hoped, he, hoped, he hoped to get a new trial based yeah, on this. With all of the other stuff. Yeah. All of the other stuff. But unfortunately, uh, time ran out. And uh, coming up to the date of the execution, he still hadn't got a stay of execution to then pursue this, pursue this new angle. And so, in the end, it was a couple hours before the the the, um, the execution was to take place. And Francis himself tells to blank, "No, just just give it up. You know, stop." I mean, and he, he particularly was noting that the year-long battle had really taken a toll on his mother. Uh, she had been stressed the whole time, and at that point, she was quite ill, and she had been getting worse. And he, she was just completely stressed out, of course, by the trial and, and her son going to be executed. And so he just said, no, give it up. I'll just be executed. It's fine. Uh, so DeBlanc went ahead a couple hours before and just stopped his appeal process. And so on May 9th, 1947, Francis was again strapped to gruesome gurdy. This time they, they brought in an actual competent person yeah. who was not drunk and who had been a, who'd been operating electric chairs for six years. Uh, the guy's name was Grady Jarrett. Yeah. And he was quite professional and well-liked. Um, he, he did a good job. So uh, he... The well did it executioner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the uh, executioner we were talking about, who everyone liked him because he was he did his job professionally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this guy was like that. So uh, Francis, they asked him if he had any last words. He just said nothing at all. They flipped the switch, and then he was the 24th person to die in that chair. Uh, so This is not the did, ending I was hoping for, I have to no, say. No, he did send a letter to the Shreveport son, uh, kind of giving his goodbyes to everyone because... Uh, people had been writing him letters and stuff, and he'd been writing back. That's kind of what he'd been doing in prison, uh, just kind of reading and writing letters, and yeah. a lot of people had been supporting him. So he did He did uh, write, and then he finished it off with... To everyone, my best farewell wishes I send, and may none reach my dreadful end. And what's, uh, something else that just should be brought up before we finish the section is that, so three years after Francis is executed in Grand, uh, Gruesome Gertie, the Supreme Court actually did reverse a murder conviction where the only evidence against this case, again, a 15-year-old who confessed to murder after a five-hour inter interrogation in this case, they went ahead and reversed it because, um, yeah, as the Supreme Court would rule in the case. We cannot believe that a lad of tender years is a match for the police in such a contest. He needs counsel and support if he is not to become the victim first of fear, then of panic. He needs someone on whom to lean, lest the overpowering presence of the law, as he knows it, crush him. Yeah, so it does appear that had, this was just three years later, so had DeBlanc got to make his argument, it does appear <sighs> that he would have won on these grounds and, and, and probably, probably gotten uh, Francis off, so... Yeah. This right. Yeah, right. <laughs> what? Yeah, so moving on. Let's do a bonus facts. Bonus uh -huh. facts. 
So Willie Francis was the first person, a living person, I should say, to be le- as executed by the state twice via electric, uh, uh, electrocution or, or sent to the chair twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out before this, there was one instance of a guy who was put in the chair twice in completely separate instances. Uh, but one of the times he, he was dead. I, I really feel like for the bonus facts, we could have, you know, gone for some nice more Genesis yeah, facts true. or something about Phil Collins or, you know, <laughs> something less to do with execution. I just thought this one was funny because he was put in the, the chair a Hilarious. second time <laughs> while he was he was dead. Uh, so the guy's uh-huh. name is is Fred Van Wormer. Mm-hmm. Wormer. And uh, so he was executed in 1903. They pronounce him dead, take him off to the morgue. But when they get there, turns out he's still alive. He's still breathing. His heart's still going. Mm-hmm. So they return him to the electric chair, but in the interim, the transport from the morgue to the electric chair, he died. Uh, but they decided to go ahead and strap him into the chair anyway and fry him again, just mm. in case. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll just skip the next it's, one. It's okay. I don't know what to say to that. Like, they take his yeah. his his dying body and... Yeah, this, this, was, this was grim. I'll skip the next bonus fact because it's grim too. All right, well, that was... Uh... That was enormously, uh, it was, it was bad. And then you think, oh yeah, this is going to end. Like he's going up to the Supreme Court. He's going to be twisted rounds. And then you realize, oh no, this is real life. The blank, the the blank after his career, like in his retirement, he was actually interviewed about this case too. And even, I think I remember it was like four decades later or something like that. He actually broke down and was like weeping in front of the reporter over this case, even like four decades later that he hadn't managed to win the case. Uh, so he was still quite broken up for pretty much his whole life about the thing. Um, hero. Hero. Yeah. And you know who wasn't a hero? Yeah, his two original attorneys. Yes. And the police. And... Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, as always, I say we'll be back, but I think it was two months since the last episode. But yeah. We're back on a more regular schedule now, I should think, right? It'll be, it'll be a little more regular, yeah. Nice, nice. Leave us a review on... You, d- did you know they renamed iTunes to Apple Podcasts? I did not know that. Someone emailed me about this saying, you always call it iTunes, but uh, I'll have you know, it's now called Apple Podcasts. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, oh, we, we totally places. forgot. We're supposed to announce a winner today. Do you have that winner? No, because it was like two months ago and I totally forgot about it. <laughs> Wait, we have another winner already? Yeah, we, well, because we, we, never, we never announced from the last one. We give away Amazon gift cards whenever we cross like a review yeah. threshold. Was this one $300 or something like that? Good Lord, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. Next time <laughs> we'll announce the winner because, wow, it's been two months. We're really sorry. Yeah, so go leave a podcast review. email in a long time. Go leave a review and then you'll be, uh, you'll, you'll sneak in under the wire. There you go. Yeah, leave us a review. All of that good stuff. And we will be back hopefully soon. Thanks for listening. Were you, were you like a law student? Yeah, I was, but not of like criminal law and not of American oh, okay. criminal law and not of American criminal law in the 1940s. <laughs>